and welcome to this week's Talking Cods Wallop. And on this week's episode, we have got a very interesting guest. We've got a guest who didn't start out doing what they are now doing. And they've got a very interesting story to tell us. Uh, so I have an author who wasn't originally an author in the shape of Mr. John Bukowski. How are you doing, John? I'm doing very good, James. I'm delighted to be talking to you after several weeks of American politics and stuff. It's good to be oh. talking to somebody in the UK. <laughs> I think world politics in general have gone a bit crazy. Uh, oh, yeah. So, John, tell us a bit about yourself, please. What's your background? My background is I grew up in, in Detroit, Michigan. And mm-hmm. since an early age, I was always in a straight science track in school. Mm-hmm. I uh, went to, got bachelor's degree in undergrad, uh, went on and earned a doctorate in veterinary medicine, practiced in uh, southeastern Michigan for a while. Uh, transitioned from that into public health work. And mm-hmm. I got a doctorate and a master's in public health epidemiology, which thanks to COVID, most people now know is disease detective work, not mm-hmm. skin doctor. Uh, <laughs> I, I get skin doctor, bug doctor, you know, uh, you, you, you got a lot of guesses. But uh, and uh, after getting a little tired of the corporate grind doing that, because I did mm-hmm. it in uh, industry and uh, government, mm-hmm. including uh, Canadian government for a while, I was a head of a clinical research center on Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, transition from that to medical writing mm-hmm. and uh, doing everything from journal articles to uh, uh, radio scripts to advertising copy in the medical field. And around 2008, the Great Recession hit in the United yes. States, which uh, my clients kind of dried up for a little while. And so I had time. And through all of this stuff, all this training and straight biology and uh, statistics, always had a love of reading, mm-hmm. always had a desire to write. The medical writing I was doing was more and more for consumers and less and less straight science and always wanted to write a novel. And I said, this is my opportunity. I've got some downtime. So I buckled down and I did write one. And it's still sitting in a drawer somewhere. And uh, that's happened with many writers, unfortunately. And after uh, uh, six or seven other novels, I got one published. And that's the one I want to talk about today. Project Suicide. Mm -hmm. If I can take you back a little bit, John. Sure. You talk about getting into the medical field and working. So that's a that's a hell of a thing to get into for people. And obviously you were very. You're a very, I mean, I can tell straight away you're an intelligent man on the conversation from, but when you're telling me your studies you've done uh, and you, you, your degrees and whatnot. So what was it that made you initially want to go into kind of a medical field? Was it, do you come from a family where that established career or? Not really. It was just something that I remember being back in grade school and with our science textbook, I would start to read ahead. And I would be several chapters ahead of where everybody else was. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was fascinating. I thought, you know, you look out at a squirrel or something on the lawn, the way that little creature operates, you know, and how all the things that have to go into making it work and live. And I always just thought that was fascinating, was fascinated by animals, uh, loved dogs, 
cats, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in that, because uh, I always like to touch on people's past. So obviously, is that what you always wanted to do when you were growing up? It's obviously what you initially went into, but did you have anything as a child that was like a, a side career? Because I always say, like, for me, I at one stage wanted to go into veterinary work, then I wanted to be a chef. Okay, neither of those things. But when I was really, you know, I wanted to be a transformer, which obviously is not, <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. Well, I, I guess back when I was like in fourth grade, for some reason, I wanted to be a uh, telephone lineman. Ah, yeah. But I'm kind of afraid of heights, so I didn't think that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that that would have been a slight issue. <laughs> but yeah, I can kind of see the appeal of the the line man work to a degree because it's you're serving a purpose. It's, That's what I figured. And what what going back to the, uh, the to your work in kind of like the the medical field what's been what was the i always because when it comes to medical stuff i've asked nurses this questions i've asked loads of people who work in those kind of fields what's the strangest thing you had to deal with oh wow the uh uh when i was doing veterinary practice i worked at uh for a while i worked as a relief veterinarian so you you fill in a few weeks here there you know mm-hmm for different people. So you see a lot of different kind of of animals, a lot of different kind of clients. And uh, I remember once seeing a dog that had uh, swelling in his face and on his leg. Mm. And it was kind of an older gentleman, country gentleman. And I asked him what was what he thought was wrong with the dog. What happened? And he said that he thought it was quails. And I said, quails. He said, yeah, he thought it was the, he got in with them quails. And I said, well, do you think these, these birds attacked your dog? And he said, no, no, porcupine quails. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was when you initially said it, I thought, I want to be a porcupine. But then when you, right. obviously, the. <laughs> right. right. And so it, it took me a second. And then it was a pretty straightforward treatment after that. <laughs> Oh dear! Well, that's <laughs> that has got me, yeah. Because you th- you would think, how can a something as small as a quail? <laughs> right. I was, I was keep. I kept imagining the quails I had seen, or you know, I knew people hunted quails. Yeah. So you 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 get things like that. I uh, I once unfortunately saw a case of gas gangrene, which oh, I, which I had never seen, and I did not know anybody who had seen, but. It was one of those things, like your first time you see a rattlesnake, you just know. Mm. And the first time I saw it, I just knew. And uh, unfortunately, the dog had to be euthanized because it had consumed most of the leg. Oh, dear. But. Uh, and what was the most, because obviously you, you did, I mean, you alluded why you made that change your career. Uh, but what was what was the most rewarding parts of working in sort of veterinary, veterinary medicine field? The, the most rewarding part was was working with the dogs and mm. being able to help the dogs, uh, you know, get a dog in shock and stabilize it. Those kind of things. That was rewarding. Uh, probably the least rewarding was dealing with some of the clients. <laughs> God, as, I can believe. <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, people will ask me even to this day, oh, you were you're a veterinarian. My son my daughter my cousin my 
grandchild wants to be a veterinarian, what advice would you give? And I will always say, well, work in retail sales for six months. <laughs> if you can take that, <laughs> then you've got a shot. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yeah, well, having worked in retail sales, uh, yeah, I can see how that's a very useful uh, useful. <laughs> skill to have uh, to have built upon so you obviously moved then from being in from being in you know the, the veterinary area you've seen that you to um what layman's obviously uh, we we amusingly had the conversation we said they called it the skin study of skin right, ailments right. which it clearly wasn't just the study of skin ailments so how did you make that shift because that is quite a, a change of pace i guess it it is i uh i knew i was getting kind of bored with practice because I really trained myself in biology and stuff for a long time. And I started thinking maybe I want to do research. Mm -hmm. So I started checking some different things out. I worked for a little while in a parasitology program. Uh, and uh, the uh, instructor said to me, well, if you get this master's in parasitology what do you want to do with it mm. and i said well i'd like to go into public health and he'd go well, why don't you get a master's in public health and so that's what i did i changed schools and got a master's degree in public health from university of michigan in ann arbor michigan mm -hmm. and then i started working in uh, public health epidemiology and we're the people who uh People know them, know us from COVID now. We're the people yeah. who deal with statistics and disease causes, disease patterns, uh, the natural history of disease, how it develops, those kind of things. Uh, I did that for a while in uh, in state government in New Jersey, and I started to get the feeling that maybe I wanted to go on and get a PhD in it. So yeah. while I was in New Jersey, I pursued that through the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Um, and like I said, while I was there, took a couple year break and headed up a clinical research center in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island at the at the University of PEI and uh, did a few other things and ended up finishing my uh, research career at uh, in, in industry. Mm hmm. And it's also, I mean, it, you, in that kind of field, you're the people that, and we have learned this more through COVID. It's an unfortunate way of learning, but we have learned this, that you, in a sense, work for people in that area have to, you have to be able to almost have the, well, it is, you have to have the, the ability to kind of second guess what a disease is going to do and sort of do, a, I guess, planning in a lot of circumstances of like worst case scenarios. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's the kind of thing where it's 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 heavy on probabilities and statistics. Mm -hmm. The field it's part it's part medicine and biology and part statistician, and so yeah, you deal with patterns of disease, and rather than with with certainty, you deal with likelihood of risk. Mm -hmm. You know what is the uh, as we noticed from COVID that most of the mortality, the vast majority occurred among people with risk factors. Yeah. Things that made them likely to get lung problems, like being very heavy or having a heart condition or having a pre-existing lung condition like uh, um, bronchitis or something mm -hmm. like that. 
um, or having an immune system problem so that the disease took off. It was it, the bulk of the mortality fell within these people who are at high risk. And, and what the idea with risk is you don't know. It's not a certainty. It's an increased likelihood. So if uh, you, 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 everyone's heard the, the person who said, you know, I smoke cigarettes because my grandfather smoked. He died at 84 because a bus hit him. <laughs> um, but, you know, what he was, he was lucky. He defied yeah. the odds. Uh, you may not be. And uh, it's all a matter of you can't say for certain uh, how much risk are you willing to take. Yeah, very, very true. So when you work in and uh, I promise I have a terrible habit of asking people about the past. I like to always learn a bit more about people. So when you work in all those fields, how did you sort of keep your energy levels going? Because you always I always see it's something where it's a long slog on things like that. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's. It, you move from project to project and, uh, you know, you're working on one project and that's interesting. And that winds up, you, you try to get another interesting project. You know, when you're working in something like government or industry, there's a lot of mundane routine work just as in any job, mm. but you look for those things that'll stimulate your interest and you, you try to keep up, you read journals, uh, attend conferences, uh, keep the uh, the the brain cells operating. So you've been in that those fields. They've taken up the the large portion of your time. And I remember you saying how you hit we and I unfortunately do remember this all too well. The 2008 crash when that happened and that had huge impact across the world and it changed. And you've seen it again recently with the situation with COVID. It changes either a people's ability to, to work in certain fields right. or it creates, and you've seen it a lot more recently, people reassessing their life and the kind of things they want to do. So was it, well, you were saying that obviously some of your client base sort of dried up slightly. Was it, a, you obviously made a change at that time. So was it that you went, right, it's the, it's, it was it a mixture of the client base drying up and you thinking, I want to do something different. Was it a mixture of both? Uh, it was it was a little of both. And I had, like I said, loved reading my whole life. Always uh, I, when I used to have a chance to take during in my science education, mm. I had a chance to take an elective that was not science. It was usually English literature or writing. And as I was doing medical writing, I found that I was gravitating away from the journal articles, mm-hmm. the straight science cookbook formula toward things like consumer handbooks and website content, either in human or veterinary medicine, Um, radio scripts, wrote a bunch of radio scripts. And I found I had a lot of fun doing this and it wasn't the traditional scientific. It was much more and more and more consumer. It wasn't fiction, not yet, but it was getting closer to that. So when I had the opportunity to write a novel, when I had a break and I did write it, it was both a wonderful feeling of accomplishment and a lot of fun. And I started saying at that point, you know, I want to keep doing this. So while I was still doing medical writing, I would write, um, keep working on novels and 
short stories, got a couple short stories published. And around 2015 or so, my wife was still working full time. And I said, you know what? I'm going to switch. And I'm going to have some fun at work for change. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I started kind of doing uh, fiction writing full time. You, you, I mean, you, my camera isn't on because I'm looking at a, a crazy state today, and I don't feel that's fair on John. So the question, but you didn't get to see my big smile when he said about uh, radio sort of plays, scripts that you'd done. So what were they? Because I love, I absolutely love stuff like that. Yeah, the the radio scripts were for a thing called Animal Airwaves, which was a uh, uh, a thing that was put out by the. Florida State University School of Veterinary Medicine. And basically what they were was one minute spots. I think they were a minute. It might have been a minute and a half or something like that about some animal thing. Mm-hmm. And it had uh, each, each one was like a, a mini story. It had a hook, you know, some interesting factoid, then a little explanation about it and then kind of a humorous or interesting ending. And I must have written about 120 of these things, 125, something like that. And not only were they nice, steady work, you know, you could, if you had a little time during the day, you could knock out one of these things. But they were a lot of fun because, again, it was breaking that mold of uh, straight science Mm -hmm. and going with uh, something a little little lighter, a little more unregimented and when you were you obviously said you always enjoyed reading when you were younger what kind of novels uh were you into did you have any particular favorite authors oh i had it it depended a lot on what age i was i started off with some with some older science fiction you know uh, men in the moon kind of things mm-hmm. and went to jules verne and uh from Jules Verne, I went to Tolkien. The uh, I remember reading the Tolkien books in about a month and a half during one summer. Read them all, and uh, then then read them again, and uh, all thousand some pages or whatever it was, and uh, that was kind of then you know I discovered Stephen King when I was in college. Really enjoyed him. Still do enjoy him to this day. A uh, big fan of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, I think his uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls is one of the greatest books ever written. Um, like some authors like Robert Parker and uh, big fan of Michael Crichton. Uh, Project Suicide is a tech thriller, not unlike something done by Michael Crichton. I was going to say, when you said Crichton, I was thinking that the Project Suicide is the, it's that kind of that genre. Yeah. I think what I love to, when you talk about the, the, the fact that you could sit down and you got through an entire run of novels, I have that kind of thing. If I get into a book, I yeah. literally will just devour it and I will just keep going and going and going and, and reading, uh, you know, until I hit the end and you're like, my God, what time is it? <laughs> right. Somewhere. I, I love the books that you, you get like that on where you say, I'm just going to read one more chapter. You know, what time is it? And when you're done, you get that feeling of wow. And darn, it's over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because 
for me, I, I, I mean, I'll read a, a whole range of books. I'll read things like sci-fi. I'll read some of the cl- more classic stuff. I, mean, I love Dickens' work. Um, when it came to, because like with me also, when I was younger, I was kind of influenced, I guess, on some of my reading. When I think back to it, I would watch say, things like maybe Star Trek on television, then I got into reading the actual yeah. novels that were created from them. Did you have any kind of particular TV things, films that you followed in that kind of entertainment sphere? Oh, God, I watched, my, my wife would say I watched way too much TV. Um, the, uh, I've heard, I heard that a hell of a lot from my parents. <laughs> the, in science fiction kind of stuff, I probably, the Twilight Zone influenced yes. me the most. My People say my short stories, I've gotten about eight published, and they kind of have a Twilight Zone feel to them often. Uh, Twilight Zone, Star Trek, Outer Limits, uh, some of the shows like Bonanza and Wild Wild West, I, I, uh, comedies like Get Smart, um, movies, oh, everything from westerns to war pictures to uh, to dramas to uh, uh, epics. Uh, I, I, I love them all. Old movies. Uh, I don't know. Am I, am I on camera for you or? I can see you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you look behind me, mm-hmm. you can see some of my movie collection. I've got about 600 titles in DVD. Uh, the vast majority of them are before 1990. And well, I, I just want to say, sticking up for someone who, who has a, a vast film collection, because I'm in that area as well. I, I don't think there's any issues there at all, John. I think that's a very good thing. <laughs> now, the way, the way I see it, because some people can say, well, God, you watched that movie 20 times. Why would you want to watch it again? And it's like visiting an old friend. Yes. You know, you totally. may have seen them 100 times, but you still want to go see them. And it's like reading. You can read a book yeah. and you can read it again and again. Yeah. But you may find little elements that you maybe hadn't picked up on the first time. It's the same thing when you're watching a film. I watched one recently yeah. with a friend. It was a James Bond one, The Living Daylights. So I've seen that more times than I care to mention. Um, and I picked up other little things in it. And I've seen it so many times. Well, I watched it with them and I'm like, wow, I've never actually t- noticed this little scene. So to me, re-watching or re-reading things. Right. You uh, pick up, you're right. You yeah. pick up little stuff that you didn't notice before. Some of it's just little technical things, but some of it is very insightful. I remember uh, just watching not that long ago, Wait Until Dark. Mm-hmm the movie with, uh, about the blind woman. And uh, initially, when we're introduced to the characters, we have uh, Alan Arkin plays Mr. Rote, who is, we know right away, is an evil man. We see him do evil things. Mm-hmm. But we then are introduced to his two henchmen, who are uh, Jack Weston and Richard Crenna, I believe. And initially, we don't really know much about them. Both both have played likable characters in the past. And you think, well, maybe they're not too bad. And uh, this whole idea of show, don't tell in writing, you get a lot of that in one little brief dialogue passage where Richard Crenna says, do we have to hurt anybody? Hurt anybody? Yeah. And Mr. Rote says, do you care? Mm. And Richard Crenna says one word, no. And you know, you know his character completely now. You do. 
you do. So you also you, you mentioned that you'd done you'd actually written some short stories. Which did you which do you find the trickier element? Obviously, when you're writing a novel, you're writing a much larger piece. Right. But the thing for me is, I always want to know with anyone who writes anything. I'm particularly interested with you because you've gone from one diff, one field to a different field, which is. With a short story, with any story, when you start out, do you say to yourself, right, I know exactly how this will end? Or do you, do you, uh, does it come to you yeah. as you're writing it? With a short story, generally, yeah, because it is a short medium. I, I, I always encourage people when they ask about writing is, you know, write short stories. You want to write a novel, write short stories, not because they're the same, they're very different, but short stories let you learn, let you learn to write. You know, form sentences, form paragraphs, uh, have a flow that makes a point. Um, but it's very different from novel writing. So kind of at the beginning, yeah, you kind of know beginning, middle and end, maybe crudely, but still beginning, middle and end. And you flesh that out with a novel. Uh, there's two types of novelists as a general rule. Those who outline first, they know the beginning, middle and end pretty well. They outline it, maybe in detail, maybe roughly, and they try to stick to that. Or you have people they call us seat of your pantsers, where you basically just go with the flow and let, and that's what I am. You let the characters reveal themselves to you. You mm -hmm. let the plot evolve. Things come to you while you're walking or, or working, walking on the treadmill, walking uh, outside, uh, taking a shower, things come to you that you go, like, oh, yeah, that would be a good way to take that. And you take it in that direction. And somehow, don't ask me how, it all kinds of kind of comes together at the end. And I have to add, you made me want to laugh when you talk about the different times of inspiration must must take you, because you hear musicians saying that, don't they? That's something it'll suddenly just come to them. So are you one of these people who, as soon as it happens, you have to write it down? Or are you lucky enough to have the ability to remember things? It, it depends on what it is. If it's something that's a real broad uh, way to take a story, I'll remember that. If it's a nice play on nice phrasing, a nice uh, uh, change to make a, to make a plot point or on a character to reveal a character. I will go and write that down, or just sometimes grab a microphone and record the way I thought it should read. And uh, oftentimes, by doing that, you don't need to even go back and listen to the recording because it's in your brain now. Interesting. Now, I when I was looking over your website, am I correct in thinking you've done some stage work? I have. I uh, I did. I haven't done a lot lately because I've been concentrating on the writing. But I did do theater and musical theater for about well, close to 20 years, 15, 18 years anyway, in uh, New Jersey and again in Dayton, Ohio, where I lived for about 15 years. I first started around year 2000 i i uh always wanted again i always wanted to act mm -hmm. love movies love tv shows i thought that would be neat to act so i auditioned for a play man of la mancha oh wow and i got dr carrasco which Brilliant. is which is not a huge part but it's not a small part and that's kind of the bug hit me 
And I started taking voice lessons and uh, doing more musical theater. And I was fortunate enough to play uh, uh, the role of Don Quixote later. And uh, Sky Masterson in Guys and Dolls. Uh, Guteau in Assassins, which is a Stephen Sondheim musical. Mm-hmm. Um, Elwood P. Dowd in Harvey. Uh, the Prince and uh, The Wolf in Into the Woods. So I had a lot of fun doing a lot of different roles and uh, met a lot of nice people. It sounds, yeah, I mean, that's some really diverse work as well. What was it that got you, that kind of bit you so much to make you think acting? So obviously you were saying, you're like, hmm, this is kind of interesting. This is good. What was it? Well, it was actually, my my wife pushed me into it. Every Ah. time we'd see an audition notice or something in a local paper, I'd say, you know, I'm going to do that one of these days. And finally, she said, you've been saying one of these days for a long time. <laughs> Here's a notice for Man of La Mancha. You love that music. You're going. <laughs> and I said, well, if you come for moral support. Yeah, and so yeah. she, she did. And she ended up helping with the music because she is musically inclined, plays piano. And she ended up helping some with the music and the singers. And uh, that kind of got me started. That was in a little theater group. Uh, in Flemington, New Jersey. Brilliant. And do you think you will, I mean, obviously you're, co- you're concentrating uh, as a writer at the moment. Do you think you would ever look at going back to going into the stage? I, 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 have, I have thought about it. One of the reasons I got out of it, a big reason was it eats up a lot of time and mm-hmm. I was getting into the writing and trying to be uh, more than just a dilettante writer, more of a serious novelist. But... Uh, I also got to the point where I was too old for the leading man roles and not old enough for the good old man roles. Right. So you so hit I, the middle I, ground. I fell into that middle ground. And now it was a matter of, you know, yeah, you can be in a show, but you're going to be some uh, some minor character schlub somewhere uh, because you really you really can't fit into the good parts. <laughs> and uh, so I said, you know what? It's it, it takes up a lot of time. But I will say this about acting. If people, they say they want to learn how to do dialogue, that's something writers often say. Yes. They don't like their dialogue. They want to learn to write better dialogue. Read plays. Because plays are nothing but dialogue and stage direction. And uh, that's that's one thing. Read plays. And the other thing I encourage people, read Elmore Leonard. Yes. If you're familiar with Elmore Leonard, he wrote am, a, lot of, yes. a lot of Westerns, a lot of crime books. I've read most of his books and he's the king of dialogue. He certainly is. That's very true. I had to laugh when you were talking about like the, the, the aging out of certain roles. You know, it always reminds me of when I was reading uh, Michael Caine's autobiography and he was saying that they sent him a script and he looked at it and he was like, there's this nothing really here you know it was like for for the the lover role was, there's nothing right. here. this is send it back to his agent this is no use it's inconsequential it's too small they went michael you this isn't for you this role you're the grandfather <laughs> <laughs> reminds me of margaret hamilton uh, mm. the, uh, the actress when she was in wizard of oz her agent said to her i've got you a reading for a wizard of oz and she goes great which part and her agent said, why, the witch, of course. 
Oh, it must be. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, for for someone like Michael Caine. I think that must have been the moment of realization. Well, that's pretty much what he said in the the book. They realized yeah. he was having to re uh, refocus himself. So, John, I have chewed your ear enough on your past. I want to know about your novel. Tell me all about it. Project Suicide. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll start. I'll start you off. Uh, we already said it was a, uh, a kind of a, a technical thriller, kind of like Robin Cook or Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. It's in that realm, um, fairly fast paced. Uh, the quick two sentence log line is a cure for Alzheimer's disease has been perverted into an assassination drug. Now, high level politicians are killing themselves and only a drunken genius can save them and the country. If that doesn't get your attention, you <laughs> bloody well got mine. I can tell you. When I saw the thing, I was like, "This is the sort of book I will, I will really, really enjoy." So, where did the well? Firstly, so you've got to sit down and write a novel. So that that that's your set thing. So how do? And I asked, I've asked an other novelist this. How do you do the discipline? Now I. With you, I think it's probably a bit easier because I think you will be, with your previous work, you're studying one hell of a disciplined person. Yeah, I, I think I think you would say that. And it, you're right. It's very similar when you when you're working on a scientific project or writing a journal article or whatever. you got to sit down and do the work. And the same with novel writing. You have to sit down and do the work on a on a steady basis. It's I uh, I often joke it has to be a hobby because you have to love to do it. But it also has to be a business in that you have the discipline to sit down and, and do it. So, yes, you're right. It's it's very similar. And whether you set yourself a word count or a number of hours a day that you're going to write or revise, uh, you have to do it routinely. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I do. Uh I came up with the idea for Project Suicide um, actually when I was visiting my father-in-law in a nursing home, or not a nursing home, it was a uh, 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 a senior's home. Yes. And uh, he had he suffered from uh, vascular dementia. It's not as bad as Alzheimer's disease, but it does work on your intellect. Yeah, and I used to go ahead. I'd, well, I was going to say I had a family member who was afflicted with it, so I do have knowledge of the illness. Yeah, many people today do. And uh, so I used to see from week to week, because I'd visit him every week, this man who was a brilliant engineer for Ford Motor Company. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie uh, Ford versus Ferrari. I, I am, and I loved it. I really, really loved it. Yeah, and he he was in engine development for Ford at the time, in racing engines. Wow. So he was he was a quite a brilliant man. And over time, he he got to the point where he couldn't tell time anymore. And it was sad to watch. Mm-hmm. But it also got me thinking. I knew people were looking for a cure for it. But I thought to myself, I had a, I had what they call a what if moment. And what if is a very big thing for writers. It's an idea generator. Now, I'll give you some examples. What if. A killer shark terrorized a resort community, and the chief of police was afraid of the water. You got Jaws. 
Mm-hmm. What if you could actually find fossilized dinosaur DNA and genetically engineer a dinosaur? Now you've got Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton. Um, so my what if was, what if they found a cure for Alzheimer's disease, but it had a bad side effect? What if when it blocked the gene for Alzheimer's disease, it also blocked an adjacent gene for self-preservation? Mm. So as you've got your sense of self back, you also got a sense of self-loathing and wanting to die. And here was the big what if. What if you gave this drug to a person who didn't have Alzheimer's disease? There would be no Alzheimer's gene to block, but it would still block the self-preservation gene. And you would have, in essence, the perfect assassination drug. Because the the target, the victim, would do themselves in. The, the sad thing for for you, but also, as I said, the good thing not having to see me is I'm just like moving between grinning and going a bit <laughs> slight jokes. I'm like, wow, this plot's brilliant. It's see, and I, I do not blow smoke up people's posteriors, John. That sounds incredibly good. Now. The question, that, the other question I want to ask is this, because I, as part of this, I interview people from all different backgrounds. I, I interview people who who've gone into film, I mean, and acting, and you've done that, uh, but you did that as like a, a part-time thing, and you took this big shift of going from medical into writing. So the question for you, John, is this. Did any, any of your family look at you and go, are you sure <laughs> or are you crazy? Or are you crazy? Because I've so I've heard so many people like going, are you sure you want to do this? Are you? <laughs> well, not so much in that respect. You get you get a little bit uh, w- when you ask people to read stuff, you know, early in your writing, when you're not as good as you as you as you later become mm-hmm. and they read some stuff and they're going to, oh, this is this is nice. <laughs> You know, uh, um, and I get the, the same polite way. smile <laughs> when I read stuff from 2010. Now I go, "Ooh, you know, <laughs> what were you thinking? But uh, but yeah, so you get a little of that. I never really got uh, um, too much of that. Mostly you got encouragement. People thought it was really neat that you're uh, mm. doing this. Hey, you wrote a novel, you know, even, you know, there's lots of writers, lots of novel writers. Those who have ideas for novels never write anything. Mm-hmm. Those who, who write part of a novel and then give up on it. And then there's those that actually complete a novel. And whether it's good or not, and first drafts especially often aren't, you've completed a novel. Yeah. And uh, that takes, like you say, not only discipline and uh, a consistency and you know, like I said, it's got to be a hobby and a discipline. You know, the hobby is you do it because you love to do it. And otherwise you couldn't sit down and do it. But if you want to be serious about it, you've got to keep sitting down and doing it. Yeah. And you'd obviously you'd made that decision. You've gone ahead and, and you, you have created this great novel. What I want to ask you is how just and I'm sure our listeners will also be wondering this. So you've got your idea. You've got it together you've had people read it and they've gone i like that that sounds really good what are the steps of publication well and a lot of people this is where a lot of people have uh 
um, don't really understand the process. A lot of people think you write a draft, maybe you read it through again, you send it off to somebody, they publish it, and that's it. Uh, actual thing is you write a draft, you let it sit for a little while, a couple weeks, a month, you go through it again, revise, and then send it off to some other people, what we call beta readers, and say, what do you think of this? Does it confuse you? Does it interest you? You want to keep reading when you read one chapter? They give you feedback. You revise again based on that. You let it sit for a little while more, <laughs> probably doing other stuff, working on another novel, writing short stories. Then you pick it up again and revise it. And after around the fourth or fifth revision, it's finally where you're at a point where you think it's good enough for other people in the, in the profession to see. And then it's a matter of whether you're going to try to do something through the traditional publication process of getting an agent and having them pitch it to the three or four big houses out of New York or worldwide, or maybe about five or six houses in the U.S. and Europe. Um, or are you going to try to publish it on your own? Now, for years, I tried to publish in a, uh, through the agents. And it's very difficult because they are inundated. They literally get hundreds, if not a thousand, unsolicited manuscripts queries every month. And they can only take a few of those. And it's not only even because they're necessarily good or not good. It's, they, it's a concept they think they can sell. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that for several novels. And then I found a for Project Suicide, I started looking at small presses, ones that don't require an agent, but they still publish novels. And uh, there's a lot more of those now. The publishing industry has changed. Like I said, there used to be oh, dozens of big presses in the big cities, London, uh, uh, New York, etc. Now there's only a handful. So the industry has really changed, but there's all these small presses now. So I found a small press in Indiana that was very interested when they read the initial three chapters or whatever. You usually send them three chapters or five chapters, depending on what they want, um, a synopsis, one or two pages, and a query letter where you kind of do a pitch. And uh, they liked the query letter and they liked the writing and uh, we ended up making a deal. But that was a process that probably took about Two and a half years to go from uh, finishing revision to finally getting it on the bookshelves. And I was I, I was interested when you mentioned that you have the, the the beta readers. If they come back and say to you, "I really don't like X," or "I really don't understand Y," <laughs> how do you kind of like deal with the? It's not because it does it feel like rejection slightly when they say that or. Well, it, it also depends on, say you have three people read it, and if all three of them say, I was confused during this part, or I didn't understand this was a flashback or whatever, that says probably it's a problem because people can't be in your head. They have to go by what's written on the page. Mm -hmm. And so then you make revisions. If somebody says something like, I didn't like this character for some arbitrary reason, and no one else found that, Maybe you don't change anything. Uh, and it's also your own 
journalist or not journalistic literary uh, integrity, literary vision. It's like, no, I want it to be that way. Maybe you didn't like it, but other people will. That kind of stuff. And the ultimate is if if a editor likes it. Mm. That's that's really the other. But yeah, the beta readers, uh, there's all kinds. There are a couple of beta readers I know who are fairly good writers and can be counted on to give fairly good feedback. Sometimes you just submit it to a family member or somebody else just to get a general view. Uh, and you sometimes have to take their stuff with a grain of salt because, uh, you know, maybe they don't read this genre, for example. It's very interesting, and that's when you talk about the way things are now published, because you are right, generally, even now, I was kind of mentally checking myself when you were discussing it, even in my head, and I've spoke to quite a few people who, who've written things, and they've written comic books as well, people in that genre. The view you have in your head is that it's got to go to a large print person, and it's now really interesting to see, as you've done it, that you've gone to a small level print uh, person, uh, company and you're also hearing about people who say go online to you know that do things like crowdfunding stuff so right. it, it's nice to see that the the market is for both novels comics and things of that nature is not this once locked down thing that it was the options are actually open to people to get their stories and ideas out there to people yeah it's uh it's the industry's really changed um, when you read uh, people even like 20 years ago, like Stephen King talked about getting an agent 20 years ago, and it was a really simple process. Now, he's a great writer to start with, but he's like, he goes, well, you, you, you write some short stories, you get them published, and then you contact an agent and you say, you know, I'm thinking of a novel. Here's my idea. Represent me. And after five or six, they do. Well, it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, you can You could literally do that with no, no agent even wants to look at you unless you have a completed manuscript now. It should be completed, polished, and edited. Um, and even with that, they get, like I said, several thousand a year unsolicited. Um, so the, the chances of getting published through that track they're not zero, but they're a lower order of probability. We talked about probability. It's a lower order of probability now than it used to be. But you still you have these uh, smaller presses now, and you also have people who just publish on their own. Now that's great because they can get their stuff out there. But you know, there's an awful lot of stuff out there, and not all of it is good. So. You're you're kind of awash in a sea of of stories mm. and people ha- people have to try to people take a risk if they read it because there's a lot of it out there and not all of it's good. So you, to get noticed in that is becoming more difficult because there is an awful lot out there. It's got positives and negatives. The stuff can get out there on a positive side. The negative, there's a lot of stuff out there. And that interestingly leads on to my next question very well, actually. So on the fact there's a lot of stuff out there. So putting aside your own work, if you could have written anything or been involved, say, work with an, uh, any other author, 
in any sort of genre? Because I know we discussed Tolkien has been something interesting. interest you. What would you have gone for? What would your choice have been? Um, you mean actual an actual person working with someone or uh, meeting them? Yeah, or? yeah. No, well, yeah. let's go with all of them. <laughs> let's what? go with all the options. I like that, John. Okay. Well, as far as meeting someone or or or, or getting to know them, it would be Herm- Ernest Hemingway for me. The man was yeah. bigger than life. His work, he certainly, he changed American literature. Uh in a way very few authors have. And his work, his life was bigger than life. His personality was bigger than life. Just a very interesting character. To actually work with someone on their work or to be tutored by them, I guess you'd say, menteed by them, Mm -hmm. I would probably pick Elmore Leonard. Yeah. He's a Detroit boy like me. And uh, his... Like I said, he's king of dialogue, and his characters are always good. His his plots uh, are always good. Him and Stephen King, I'd say, are most consistent with characters and plots in 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 my book, anyway. Yeah, I mean, you've picked two of two novelists I love in Leonard and King. Uh, for me, uh, <laughs> his Black da- for for Leonard the Black Dahlia novel. I really oh, yeah. enjoyed that. I was a bit iffy on the film, but I did enjoy the novel. Uh, and for King, I always pick a bit of a strange one, really, because most people's things like, you know, um, I mean, I like Pet Cemetery, but they might go the obvious things like Misery and Pet Cemetery. For me, it's Thinner. Thinner, yeah. That was yeah. not what he wrote as Richard Bachman, yeah. Mm. So what? which would be your favourite for, for King? For, for Stephen King, I mean, I like, again, I like a lot of them. The Shining was the first one I read, and it gave me chills. But the one novel, it's not his longest or his best known, which I've, I've read several times now and enjoyed it every time, is a little one called Joyland. It's, it's a story about a guy reminiscing about working in a basically a carnival, a carnival midway in the 1970s. And it's got both a coming of age kind of human interest aspect as well as uh, a supernatural aspect. I have, yeah, I've read it. As soon as you mentioned it, yeah, yeah. And they they blend together around a old crime which they're trying to uh, comes to come to grips with. So it's uh, it's it's it's. But like you said, it's thinner as yours. Mine is Joyland. It's not one of the traditional ones, but uh, it's a small gem. It's only about three hundred and fifty pages, which is nothing for Stephen King. I mean, mm. that's almost that's almost a short story for him. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> He's the only novelist I know who consistently writes 2,000 words a day. The, the other one of his that I really like, and I, you may be able to help because I can't remember the name of it, but it's a guy who's a surgeon who's he's like shipwrecked on a beach, and he uh, has to deal with some health issues, we say. Oh, I'm trying to think. It sounds, it sounds familiar. There's a couple about a beach. One is Duma Key, but that's not a, uh, a surgeon. There's another one about a guy... Trapped in a porta potty that I think took place <laughs> in a in a beach area or whatever, but I can't I can't recall. All I can all I can really remember is he has to uh, amputate elements of his uh, part oh, of himself. Oh yeah, I'm trying to think of what that was. If it was uh, a short story or a teleplay or what what it was. But yeah, now that you mention it like that, yeah, 
I can't, I think it's a short story. Yeah, I think it is, but it was and, a, and, and it always stuck in my I mind. I can't remember the title. We're now probably, I'm now probably traumatized some of the listeners. <laughs> <describing>. <laughs> so, John, if you, again, I'm going to, I'm curious because I really like the book that you've written. If you were go, because I can see film potential. If you were going <laughs> to cast it, I can really see film potential. But if you were going to cast it, who would you go with? Not give you away the plot for the listeners. Sure. Um, I, I'm not sure because part of, part of the problem I have with that is that most of the movies that I watch are 30 years old or more. Mm-hmm. And so the people I think of would now be either too old or dead. Right. Um, I can think of somebody like uh, though, uh, a Matt Damon, for example, as Deacon Creel. Uh, I can think of, is it Ryan Gosling? I believe mm-hmm. his name is, uh, as a possibility, uh, David Stratham, mm-hmm. a few names that come to mind as a, uh, as a possibility for the lead. Mm. I haven't really thought much about it otherwise. Mm. Yeah, that's not interesting. Damon was in my head as well. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking either Matt Damon or possibly a bit of a, a, a left field choice, but something like Daniel Craig, maybe. Oh yeah, I, well, possibly he's got the intensity. He's got the intensity. Um, I'm not sure if he has the kind of sh- crap-eating grin that somebody like a Matt Damon has, which I think <laughs> is good for Deacon. <laughs> yeah. I do know what you mean as well. <laughs> so, John, what? Um, obviously, you've got this novel coming out. I and I strongly do urge the uh, we call them sal- uh, salty tadpoles because we go with the uh, the older talking codpole fish motif to hunt this book down and go for it. But what what is your future plans for novels? What what does the future hold for you, John? I'm I'm finishing up one right now. Uh, called Checkout Time, which is another thriller, but more of a crime thriller. And it's about a uh, an, a, an arsonist slash bomber who is trying to extort money from a hotel consortium. And he starts off by bombing one of their hotels to send a message. And uh, unfortunately for him, a beautiful FBI agent and a handsome government researcher who specializes in hotel fires or commercial fires happen to be on the same floor where the bomb goes off and they become embroiled in the investigation and to track down this this mad genius who is known only by the pseudonym Conrad Hilton that's on his, his demands He's, he calls himself Conrad Hilton and uh they try to hunt him down, and eventually he's hunting them. So it becomes a uh, a, per, a pursue versus pursued. And uh, I came up with the idea for that one actually in a hotel room. There was a trap door in the ceiling, and I said to myself, you could put anything up there. What if somebody put a bomb up there? And I said, heck, it's a hotel. It's not like an airport. You can bring in anything you want. And... Uh, that got me thinking about that. That's that I hope to get to my publisher in the next month or so. 
estimate six months or so till it would actually come out. But and I'm also working on I just started on three thousand words into a sequel for Project Suicide. Ah, excellent. See, I think that that you are also working on the idea, John, of trying to bankrupt me because I will just buy all your stuff. <laughs> well, I would appreciate it. And that's what I wanted to tell people. They can get the book through all the traditional means. It's on Ingram, the big book distributor. Uh, certainly it's on Amazon. Uh, and the easiest way to get to it on Amazon is just to do www.projectsuicidenovel.com. That will take you, that link will take you immediately to the Amazon site where you can get the book on Kindle, uh, paperback or hardcover. Uh, Kindle and paperback are very reasonable. Uh, hardcover, I bought one, but I don't expect a lot of people to. And do you have any links for your websites that you'd like to share with us? I do. It's uh, www.thrillerjohnb.net. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I cannot thank you enough. I have had a really good time talking to you. You have made me smile. You made me smile through most of it, and that's always a good sign. One Uh, thing I also wanted to hmm. say to your listeners, that if you do read the book, and I hope you do, and I hope you enjoy it, the best thing you can do for an author, author is put an Amazon review on. The reader's judge books by the number and quality reviews and amazon judges book placement by number and quality reviews as john has said once you've got it get on there and give the reviews i will sign off because i think i've taken up enough of your valuable time because you've got to get right in the other stuff the new stuff though so i will just say without further to do ado i never remember which one it is i think we've been talking of codswell this episode i've been james and it no more to say but john thank you so much for this And I look forward to reading your future novels. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. And uh, peace, everybody.